Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on Earth Day, April 22, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Our human health and our environmental health are deeply intertwined, and each requires you know, the other to, to, to stay healthy. That's Lauren Oakes. She's a scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society and an adjunct professor in Earth System Science at Stanford University. She's also the author of the book In Search of the Canary Tree, the story of a scientist, a cypress, and a changing world. The canary tree is the yellow cedar type of cypress that's native to coastal areas of northwest North America. Another name for it is the Alaska cypress. It's being called the canary tree because it's the canary in the coal mine up in Alaska where Oaks did her research. In March, Alaska temperatures averaged 20 degrees Fahrenheit above historical norms. To talk about the book, I called Oaks at her home in Bozeman, Montana. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I think you get into a lot of things that are really important that you don't see in a lot of scientific research. And uh, so let's talk very briefly about how you decided to make this tree your uh, study focus. Sure. So I say in the book, and it's true, that I never thought I'd be someone who spent years of their life studying a species. And I actually think those scientists are pretty weird, but but now I'm one of them. (laughs) And uh, there were good reasons for it, though. Um, I generally was attracted to work in the north because warming there is occurring faster at faster rates than the averages across the planet. So in some ways, you can think about Alaska or the far, far north as a looking glass into the future in terms of what other kinds of impacts we're going to see when it comes to climate change. So I spent a summer up there doing exploratory research where I really had no idea what the topic would be. I was interviewing scientists who were working in fisheries management or forest management, policymakers who were addressing things like coastal erosion on the far north coast uh, where communities have to move inland and many other you know, kinds of climate change impacts, whether it's water resources or uh, all, all kinds of resources that we depend on. And anyways, I was hoping in that time that I would come across a topic, you know, and a need really that was identified from the community where research could be relevant for current management and where I could take a look at both the ecological and, and social impacts of, of climate change. So I came from a program where we were trained as scientists to bridge disciplines. A lot of times in environmental problem solving, we're bringing together experts in in the room from different fields. So, uh, you know, ecologists come together with economists or policymakers, and we all kind of tend to speak different languages based on our training and disciplines. But the idea of this program is that if we train one person to, you know, speak multiple languages and to bridge across these disciplines, that the new solutions could emerge. So from the beginning, I was always interested in you know, what are the ecological impacts of climate change in a place, but then also how are people responding to those impacts? And I thought that, you know, perhaps there could be lessons for myself and my own life and for others, other people in other parts of the planet by looking at those two factors. And we'll get to the people part, but the uh, decision to focus in on this one species was, uh, was really interesting. Yeah. So during that time, I came across Dr. Paul Hennon, who's a forest pathologist at the United States Forest Service. He has since retired, but at the time we met, he was about to, st- to publish a 30-year synthesis 
which was basically showing the link to climate change uh, in terms of, you know, why are these trees dying? And it's, you know, kind of a complex pathway to death, but climate change plays a key role in that. And for me, I, that was a, a, a really good jumping off point because I wasn't a scientist coming in trying to explain, you know, why is climate change affecting the species? How, what are the vulnerabilities? You know, what's the likelihood of future events and, and that kind of thing. I had a jumping off, off point where we already know climate change is affecting the species. And then I could ask, okay, well, what's, what's happening to the rest of the forest community and, and how are people really affected by that as well? You're not looking at climate change's effect on the species as much as you are using the species as um, bellwether about what climate change will do everywhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in some ways, it's a story of loss, right? We are losing this species in in many places. But then there's also a story of regrowth, right? So what comes in after those trees die? And in the same way, you know, how can people adapt alongside those ecological changes? And you do find that uh, as the yellow cedar goes away, the the uh, western hemlock comes in. So there's there's loss, there's gain, there's a transition that's happening. It's really interesting. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk about some of the realities of doing field research. It's incredibly strenuous and uncomfortable and difficult. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's It was tough. It was tough, that's for sure. So I worked on uh, the outer coast of Southeast Alaska in the West Chichikov Yakobi Wilderness and Glacier Bay National Park, uh, which are some of the most remote wilderness areas we have in the country. Um, strikingly beautiful and also strikingly far from from civilization, as you as you call it. Um, but the the forests where I work were only accessible by boat or plane. Um, and I didn't want to be, you know, schlepping back and forth, both in terms of, you know, our time and the fossil fuels that we needed to get out to these sites. So I basically figured out a way with a pretty awesome crew to set up a base camp and we would spend two weeks at a time kayaking to random locations and then hiking into forested sites where we would then measure the plants in the in the community there and set up a set up a real plot. But um we're doing this in pretty rainy weather, foggy, soupy. Uh you know, at times there's heavy winds and you know, I always knew we were running the risk of you know, a good storm coming in and getting stuck out there. Um but you know, I, there's a lot. Of, I joke about it in the book, but it's true. Like we were growing mold in our jackets by the end of the summer, and um, you know, I had a lot of the best gear out there in terms of, you know, Gore-Tex and rubber that fishermen wear, and it didn't really matter what you wore. You were still cold and and still uh, battling the conditions a lot of the time. That's for sure. And uh, once you introduce us to your your three traveling companions. Yeah, so I had three members of of the there are three members of my crew that I worked with pretty steadily, and it, others filtered filtered in and out throughout the summers. But uh, there's Kate Cahill, we call her Mad Dog, and she came from the uh, University of California, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and she's uh, she's she's the youngest on the crew. And when I first met her, she 
you know, is in class doodling and she's got ink all over her hands and she's got a tattoo on her hand with the letters Ferocitas, which means savagery. Um, turns out she's a great artist as well as, uh, you know, one of the best there for, for as a forest technician. And uh, she was just real tough and lots of fun. And um, actually, actually ended up drawing many of the line illustrations that are in, in the book. Uh, then there's Odin Miller, who came from uh, Haines in Alaska. I wanted somebody locally to, to someone local to work with me, both in terms of both both for their knowledge, you know, maybe someone who knew a little bit about the ecology, but also someone who knew what they were getting into in terms of the conditions. Um, Odin is about six foot four and has huge feet and speaks Russian fluently and had spent time studying reindeer herding in in Russia before working with me. Um, so he just had a really interesting background. Um, and then there's Paul Fisher and we call him P fish. I gave all the Pauls in my book and in, and in my fieldwork nicknames, because it turned out that even in a, um, you know, small community of people working on yellow cedar, there were a lot of Pauls and it was pretty confusing to keep track of them. And anyone reading the book would go insane if I called them all Paul. So anyways, we call him P fish and, uh, he was, um, uh, for a student at the uh, University of Washington in Seattle. He now is a, r- runs a business that's a forestry consulting business. Um, but he helped a lot with the GIS work. And he was also tough, you know, biked across the country uh, on his own and take t- uh, taken barbed wire and burned it into his arm to celebrate the, the accomplishment. So um, amidst being, you know, good field technicians and um, – Strong scientists, you know, anyone on my crew was also really had a lot of grit, which was kind of the main qualifier. It wasn't going to be a vacation in Southeast Alaska, that's for sure. Just as an example, uh, Odin would smell his dirty socks every morning to decide which was the least offensive pair that he could find to put on. Yeah, so I don't know why he thought, you know, hanging them would do anything because I don't think it did anything. But he did He did hang his, his socks in the tent and, um, you know, they just kind of get moldier and smellier. But in the morning he would, you know, pick them all over and decide which ones were least offensive. <laughs> we all kind of had weird systems. So I would have this um, one sacred pair of long underwear that I – used only in the tent and I kept in a dry bag inside the tent when I wasn't wearing it just in case, you know, we had a storm that blew the tent over, the tent leaked. Just going throughout the day knowing that I had one set of dry clothes at night was, you know, my saving grace. But it also meant that in the morning you're taking off this like really warm and cozy and dry set of long underwear and putting on this horribly soaking ones from the day before that are then cold from the from the night. <laughs> Um, pea fish tend to run hot. That's what he said. And so he would, uh, sleep in the same clothes that he worked in and they would basically dry out by morning, which I was always pretty jealous of. I didn't, I didn't have that skill. <laughs> I mean, after your, uh, your first couple of weeks out in the field and then you come into town, uh, I forget, was it Juno or Sitka where you went to the restaurant? Oh yeah, so we went to Sitka. Uh, so we, we we would dry out in Sitka when we were working in West Chichagov, and then we also worked out a fair bit out of Gustavus, which is an even smaller town at the mouth of Glacier Bay. Um, and uh, yeah, we we just hopped right off the float plane and went right to this restaurant that's at the airport, and pretty much ordered everything we they had: pancakes and omelets and 
yeah, I can still see this the feast we had sprawled out over the table. But uh, yes, at least one member of the party uh, had tears just looking at fresh food. Yeah, the waitress came to deliver these omelets, and Mad Dog Kate just burst out into tears. And all of us just were pretty shocked because we'd never seen anything out there of like of her being even close to that. And so I remember, you know, I said, are you crying? And she's like, give me a break. Let's let me have this one moment. But uh, we were pretty happy to have some warm food in our belly. That was the one trip that we definitely ran out of food. So there was that as well. So you go out on, on multiple uh, two-week, 10-day to two-week uh, excursions, and you you got 40 different stands or plots of trees that you uh, did all kinds of measurements on. Yeah. So in the end, we were over two summers, we needed to get 50 sites. Uh, the first summer, we did 40 out in all in West Tichigoff. And I was using what's called a chrono sequence. So there's different methods to study processes that occur over time. People are probably most familiar with, you know, a longitudinal study where you follow something or someone or a site or something over a long period of time. But that's pretty impractical um, if you want to study something that occurs over decades, you know, certainly for a PhD. So um, a chrono sequence has been used by ecologists to study things like processes like how soils form in the Hawaiian Islands or how dunes take shape, sand dunes take shape in the wind. Um, anyways, I used it to study how does, how does this plant community change after these trees die? How does it develop? And then the method is basically you select a bunch of sites where you're controlling for everything, everything being a you know, loose term right there, but <laughs> as much as you can, be having consistency in the um, site selection, except for time since this phenomenon or time since death. So that meant I had forested sites that had been affected by climate change, you know, a couple decades ago where the trees had died and they're, they're, um, uh, they basically look like telephone poles on the landscape. Their, their limbs have decayed and just the main trunk is still standing. And then there are sites that are more recently affected and uh, they maybe has their primary branches and some dead foliage still kind of lingering on the, on the branches. And then we had a healthy control. And so by measuring, by setting up plots and measuring uh, those sites the same way, you can infer a process of how a forest changes over that that time, which is the main, you know, difference between them all. And uh, you do find that when the yellow cedar is dying away, the another species called the western hemlock pretty much takes hold in those areas. So there's loss, but there's also gain, and uh, there's just transition that you're dealing with there. Yeah, it's a story of, you know, it's a story of loss, but it's also a story of regrowth. And, uh, you know, an ecologist would, and as I did, take note of, you know, the turnover and what species become more dominant. But then in my writing process, that also became, you know, kind of more of a philosophical question in terms of what are we seeing for negative impacts of climate change, but also, you know, where does the positive occur and, and how can we adapt to those or take advantage of some of those opportunities? And then what I found really interesting was uh, the idea that we can't just measure and coldly calculate what's going on uh, as a sort of uh, an automaton that's 
uh, analyzing this situation completely mathematically. The in the second part of the book, you talk about the the sociology part of the study, where you go and talk to people who have intimate relationships with the forests in this region, and there are all kinds of people. They're not just uh, environmentalists. They're people uh, from the Tlingit uh, tribe who use the the materials. There are loggers who also use the materials in different ways. And it's really fascinating to get into the relationship of people to this species and how that informs how you feel about what's going on and how you feel becomes a really important part of this story. And that's the part that I found so interesting, especially to find out how these people feel gives you a whole different level of insight into what's going on there. So I've talked for like the last two minutes. Why why don't I let you talk? No, it's a great comment. And it's true. I think there was, you know, three parts to the book and really three parts to my journey. And, you know, the first takes place in the forest where I'm trying to understand how these, you know, how the plant community is affected. But the second was really trying to understand, you know, how people are, coping with these changes, you know, how knowledgeable are they about them? Do they know that it's caused by climate change? And, you know, how are they responding to those impacts? And that, you know, even as a scientist was my effort to put meaning to it. I think a lot of times ecologists come up with findings and then we're asked to make recommendations, right? So I could say yellow cedar is declining in these forests. Western hemlock is taking over. What does that mean for management? Here's what I think of as an ecologist. And we do that all the time. But I felt like you know, even as a scientist in my training, that those questions should come from the people in the community. Um, so I turned those questions to them. But, you know, really what came from that, which, you know, pretty much inspired me to write the book, was that there was a more personal element here, um, which was that people were coping with loss and people were coping with environmental change. And I want to know in my life, how do I do those things? And I wanted to know that, you know, see if I could learn that from them. So I think, you know, every before writing a book, everyone told me writing is an act of discovery, you know, and I'd say the first, first two chapters of the book are, you know, parallel my research trajectory quite closely. But the third is really trying to make sense of what can we do? What can I do? And how do I still have, you know, hope about the future in light of, what we're seeing and what we expect to see. Talk about Terry. She was really just such a great character in your book. Unfortunately, she's passed away since you last interviewed her, but let's talk about your, your the time you spent with her. Yeah, so I met her numerous times. Terry Rufgar was a uh, weaver, a woman living in Sitka, a native weaver. She's um, part Klingit. And uh, I say was because, yes, she passed away uh, in December of 2016 from from cancer, um, which was an enormous, just such a loss to the community there. But she, I would say from the beginning, you know, she welcomed me into her home and I made it clear to her that I wasn't, there wasn't something I wanted to take. It was I really wanted to learn from her. And I, I felt I felt that was my approach with anyone that I interviewed. I was, you know, looking for them, looking to them as a scientist to understand how are they coping with these changes, but also, you know, as a concerned citizen trying to figure out what can I learn from 
from people in the community uh, who may be responding in positive ways. And so she talks a lot about, and she pushed me, you know, in, in my interview with her was the, the, the word resource, you know, keeps coming up both in, I'm sure in our interview, if you were to go back and track it already, it's there for sure. Um, but she, she argues that when we go in with the idea of resourcing something, it's, we're taking from nature. You know, we have for, we have all kinds of, uh, natural resource management divisions across the country, whether it's, you know, state or federal. Um, but if we were to, to think of resourcing more as a relationship, there would be an inherent stewardship in there, you know, and it sounds a little like left or green or environmental hippie, but it's really not like it's a, I think it's a beautiful way of explaining that our human health and our environmental health are deeply intertwined and they require one to take, each requires, you know, the other to, to, to stay healthy, to be sustainable. So that's her, really her argument. And it's something that, you know, during her life, she spent a lot of time pushing for in the community and talking about, and I found it, you know, pretty profound when we think about, uh, how we might come up with solutions, you know, for the kinds of impacts we're facing today. How do we create, how do do we create more of a relationship rather than a taking from, but she's also someone I would say that triggered the name of the book, uh, so the, um, in search of the canary tree or the, you know, the referring to the canary in the coal mine. Um, she says that there are amphibians, there are cedars, there are those in our ecosystems that are the ones to warn us. And I think that's what they've been doing right now. And they have been for quite some time. And, you know, in some ways the, this species and knowing that it was caused by climate change, its death was caused by climate change was her canary, you know, to raise awareness for what's happening globally, but to understand it at a local scale. And, you know, that essentially this species became my, my canary as well. And uh, I think people might be interested to know how the, the weavers there use the tree. It's, uh, it's something that uh, you might never have even thought about because we're used to wool or cotton as being materials for fiber, but they're using the bark. Yeah. So yellow cedar has this beautiful bark um, that is you know, strangely a bit soft in texture. I mean, it's really strong, but it has this kind of like sinewy, silky feel to it. And they will strip the bark of the tree. So you're not stripping it all the way around the tree because that that would girdle it and obviously injure it. But they strip a certain width that still, you know, the the tree still can live on. And from that, um, it's then stripped down into tiny, almost like, you know, thread like yarn or fabric or um and that is woven sometimes with uh sheep's wool which becomes you know helps make it sturdier for clothing or um warm blankets and then it's you can also weave baskets or weave other items with it um so these trees have been used for you know thousands of years in that in that way and and actually in in southeast alaska if you're to once you're aware of that and you look around you'll see what are called culturally, what people, some people call culturally modified trees. Researchers call them that. Um, where basically you can see that it's been stripped. And I've definitely seen some that have been stripped, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I think in a nutshell, you delineated the conditions under which the tree 
survives or is damaged or dies. And then you also discovered that the people who had the closest relationship, whether it was functional or emotional, so whether it was a logger or a weaver, they would be the first to adapt to the new reality. Well, I went into the study trying to understand how knowledgeable are people about the these changing forests? Do they know that the tree's death is caused by climate change? And if they do, does that change in way, the ways in which they respond? And honestly, I was looking for what you know researchers will call behavioral change. So ways in which they're um, altering their daily or weekly or whatever you want to call their lifestyle um, in response to something. But I also found a whole psychological component in that, you know, the people who knew these trees were dying because of climate change also had a whole grief process around that, as well as a coping with, you know, this magnitude of this, this driver that's seemingly so distant, but is real, so really, really actually quite present in the local landscape. And yes, what I found is that people who are connected to these trees in the forest, the most connected, whether it's functionally through their, you know, material uses of the forest um, or, you know, emotionally through cultural uses or recreational appreciation, those are the people who were able to see both loss and opportunity and to begin to embrace both. You know, so there's an argument there that in order for us to adapt to climate change, we need to turn more locally. In general, a lot of the climate change communications or the news headlines, et cetera, focus on, you know, what's happening in terms of global temperatures. Temperatures. How many times have you seen, you know, the picture of the earth turning various shades of red? Um, but in reality, for people to adapt, we need to look locally and understand both what are the local losses, the impacts, but also where do we see, you know, opportunity or new growth and that's where innovation comes in. And for most of us, it's the only thing we really can do. For sure. Yeah, I think people are, you know, and I am too, like trying to grapple with uh, how does my, how can my actions affect this really large, massive, you know, global drive or something like of magnitude that we've never seen really before. Um, and that's a hard thing to grapple with. But I, I actually find it quite empowering at the local scale because you know, the fact of the matter is, is that even if we were to stop all emissions right now, we've still got lag times and there's still more coming down the pipe. So we're going to continue seeing local impacts. And, you know, whether you're talking about a tree species dying or, you know, wildflower, wildfires in California uh, this past year, you know, the more we can understand about what's happening at the scale at which people's lives are carried out, I think the better prepared we're going to be for the kinds of impacts we're, we are seeing and will continue to see. Yeah, you have a great quote from Terry at the end of uh, one of the chapters in which she appears, where she says, what we have here is a catastrophic failure. And then she continues, what a great opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly the one I have right in front of me right now. I was going to read for you at some point. But yeah, it's true. I mean, I think that's where we our, our thinking needs to shift is that, yes, there is tragedy. Yes, there are some things we cannot stop, but we also have an enormous opportunity. And we've also shown an enormous capacity in the past of all kinds of um, 
catastrophic events. I think that's where human innovation comes in and where we need to empower, feel empowered to act. Um, so yeah, it's a great opportunity, but that chapter is called the greatest opportunity because I think, you know, this one is. And maybe you can tell us about how the local people taught the scientists. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the great examples of local knowledge in the community was that of some of the native people that I interviewed may not have read or been told or heard about climate change as being the cause of uh, tree death, but based on their knowledge of place and what they'd seen and what they knew of, you know, the kinds of habitats these these trees thrive in and how their roots are, you know, in in pretty shallow soils and also observing the the, the patterns in snow over the years, they they often proposed climate change as a as a possible reason. Um, and one of the women I interviewed. Uh, one of the native women, my, women I interviewed, you know, said that in many ways the native people were the first scientists. And I love that idea of being a good scientist is about making observations over and over and over again, and able and then drawing conclusions from them, right? And we can do that mathematically with numbers um, and and fancy equations. But I also do think that someone standing still in place and observing over time ends up holding an incredible amount of knowledge. And being able to see that that played out in my own research, uh, you know, with the people I interviewed and with what I found, like a good example was um, in the forests affected by climate change, you know, the, the trees will, after the trees die, there's a, a, a growth in the understory. So you'll get a lot of shrubs coming in, things like vaccinium um, that deer really thrive upon. And, you know, talking with local community members, they're, you know, able to uh, share those observations as well, not from a mathematical perspective with the same, you know, stats and things that I would. But uh, I talked with hunters who would go into the forest that had been affected and want to hunt there because they knew that the deer were going there for the for the vaccinium and the blueberries. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. And um, you also talk about this one woman who noticed that the roots had changed their morphology 18 years ago. She says, I saw it. So I know that's connected to something that's going on environmentally. Yeah. So that was Terry Ruffgar too. She, she'd been collecting spruce roots from uh, certain areas for almost two decades. And she'd also done the same down in the lower 48 or in um, the Pacific Northwest with where there's warmer temperatures and basically she could see that what was happening in Southeast was something was happening with the, the roots where they were um, changing their shape or curling up differently. Uh, and that it, you know, paralleled other places, other warmer places where she had collected roots before. Who's to say what's exactly causing that? I don't know that we have a scientific study, scientific put in quotes, but, you know, someone's uh, observation over time there is certainly some insight to, to maybe there are other kinds of impacts occurring. Underneath the soil. There's one uh, little point I, I want to remember to talk about, and, and that's how some things in this field can be counterintuitive. Um, you talk about how as warming occurs and you get rain instead of snow, there's no insulating layer of snow to protect the roots. And because it's warmer, the roots freeze 
and the trees die. And so that's an example of how, if you're trying to explain how warming can be uh, fundamentally damaging, and you say, yeah, things got warmer and the tree froze to death. So I, I just think that's an important story to show you, to show people that in a warming world, you get interesting effects that are not what you might necessarily expect. Because if, if somebody is really um, committed to denying the reality of warming, and they say, well, see, these trees froze to death. They didn't used to freeze to death. And so how can there be warming? Well, that's how. For sure. I mean, I say in the book that I think it's like it's very counterintuitive and it's a bit confusing, um, you know, death by freezing in a warming world. What the heck? And I think that's a lot of what people will latch on to, right? That our early language around climate change was focused on warming, right? But warming causes all these other complicated dynamics. Um, warming is just really one piece of the puzzle. And in fact, one driver that then triggers many other complex interactions. I was hoping I could uh, get you to read the end of the last full chapter before the epilogue. What does this tree have to teach us? From 2010 to 2017, for nearly eight years of my life, I wrote that question over and over and over again in my notebooks, in my various computer files, on scraps of paper, on butcher paper hanging on my wall, what does this tree have to teach us? What does this tree have to teach me? My answer, that we are all vulnerable. There may be survivors carrying out their lives in pockets where conditions remain favorable. They may regroup, perhaps even evolve, and at the right moment in time, even flourish again. But what does this tree ask of me? Perhaps that one is far more important. My answer, that I can observe the changes occurring around me and embrace the struggle to accept them, to respond to them, to adapt to them. I can look ahead and live today holding space for tomorrow. I can fight for what we can still curtail. I can play a part, not live a part, and I can act with care for others when the floods hit, when the seas rise, when the snow melts, the rivers run dry, and the flames rage. Defeat may only be a failure to adapt. If this tree species and all the people connected to it gave me one great gift, it is this. The realization that there's simply no imaginal tomorrow, no modeled future scenario, no amount or shade of red that could ever possibly nullify the need for unwavering care and thoughtful action today. To me, that is thriving. To me, in this rapidly changing world, that is grace. It is how I choose to live with what I know. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can listen to a piece of music related to the canary trees. There's a link to the audio in a story we picked up from Climate Central in September 2016. A Stanford researcher named Nick Sawa turned Oak's tree loss data into music in a process called data sonification. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.